Open our lips, O Lord, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. As long as I kept it in sight, I knew I would find my path. The it that I'm talking about is a steeple that's in a town in Belgium. The context, those of you that were here around 2008 know that I received a sabbatical study grant that allowed me to do a number of things, among which was to retrace my father's steps in World War II and battle places and fields. And we had made this plan to get there, and we were escorted by these amazing Belgian hosts. I wish I could take all day just to tell you about their hospitality and their graciousness in leading us around for two days around these different battlefields and sites. I would love to tell you about the picnics they brought each day of Belgian chocolates and beer. <laughs> Mercy. As they say, Duval beer, it will bring out the devil in you. <laughs> Got to be careful on that stuff. But they took us around on these fields. Um, I won't go into all the details. There was a particular ridge line that was significant in my father's story. My father was a forward observer who was one who called in, went kind of behind lines to call in the airstrikes, the artillery strikes, and we walked on places where he literally had walked. We spent two days there, and on the last day, we ended the day going to this mountaintop ridge hillside where he and about 500 men stayed for about two days holding off. They were out of munitions and food, but, and it was also about a foot of snow and 32 degrees by chance. But they finally surrendered, becoming prisoners of war, which, needless to say, left an indelible mark on all their lives. And we stood at that site. And we knew that after two days of this, that the third day that we would spend there, we had planned nothing. We had no idea what those two days would be like. We only knew that they would be intense that cellularly we would be taking into our bodies, our minds, our bodies, souls, and spirits, stories and images, and again, touching ground. We stood in this one crater, um, an artillery crater, that literally went from that door to the altar there, and about 40, 50 feet deep. And one of our Belgian hosts, he and I were standing at the bottom of the crater, and he said, I'm guessing if you are in this battle, in these woods, you're crying for your mama. So we knew this would be intense. And so for the third day, we just said, no plans, no expectations, no plans to hang out with each other. It was my brother and my sister and Becky and our two daughters, kind of like, no expectations, whatever you need. And it became clear to me that I needed a hike by myself. And I said to them, I'm going to take a hike. I'm going to be gone several hours. I'll be back. I just needed somewhere to let the energy of those days go and get the endorphins going and some distance. And, and so I went down to the edge of the village where we were staying. It was right along the Belgian-Germany border. And I went, they have these great hiking, anybody who's had the fortune to be over there, they just, they know what trails are about. And they're marked. And they have the distances and all the different hamlets and villages. And I sat there looking at that map and as I was looking, I had the echo of my high school math teacher saying, Mr. Donatelli, someday you'll wish you had taken the metric system seriously. <laughs> saying, dog, I hate those moments. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's see, metric system, it's not in miles. How far are those? So, but I thought, you know, Becky's a runner, 10K, it's about six plus miles. I'm doing the math now. Yes, I am an arts major, but you know. We'll work it out. And I found a, a, a loop trail that would go through these different fields and hamlets and be about a three-hour 
a three-hour tour. There's a, hmm, yeah, right. And had my water and stuff in my pack, and I was walking, and it was, it was, it was really important. I don't even know how to describe it. To go there and see other sites in that area. It was one point where that ridge line I spoke about that we walked along, I could see it from a far distance. And you know when they talk about having distance in your life from things? It was a physical manifestation of having distance from the story of like, wow. And so I kept walking, seeing these amazing things. And I was about two hours in, and I realized I wasn't even halfway into the loop, not even close. Yes, my teacher was haunting me. <laughs> Didn't do your conversion right, did you? And I knew I was starting to run out of water, and that, there's no villages around here. There's little hamlets of houses and farm fields and stuff like that. So it wasn't like I could stop at the 7-Eleven and get some, you know, Powerade or whatever you like to drink. And remember, this is 2008 iPhone had just come out that year. We didn't have Google to figure out metrics. We didn't have GPSs and apps. Those didn't exist then. I had a flip phone that I left in the hotel because it wouldn't have done any good out there. But I knew it probably wasn't good to try to just go back the two hours. I had to figure out how to cut that loop off and find a way to get to a highway that I knew was in the woods out that way. But what I also was realizing as I was hiking was that there was this steeple in the village where we were that I would see from time to time, the most prominent symbol there. And I realized, if I keep that steeple on my left, and I make sure that wherever I'm doing, I'm getting closer to it and not farther, I'm going to probably find my way. And it was fascinating, because there were some other maps around, but they didn't have just quite, the, because I realized, I need those roads that go through that little group of houses there and that go through that field there. And so I started walking and I'd occasionally run into a dead end. Another time I'd have to regroup or I'd see a fence that I thought, I think I can cut through this field. And I'd see other fences that said, I don't think they want me in this field. But eventually found my way to that highway that led me back to the village and was really kind of exhilarated by the adventure. Because again, at times the steeple would drop out of sight at other times it would come back, but I knew it was there. And having the connection and having the perspective to say, am I getting closer or farther? Am I, is it where I need it to be? Allowed me, even as I was going through those places I hadn't charted or the maps hadn't charted, allowed me to be present because I knew I was connected to it. And allowed me to see things along the way without just panicking. And oh yes, at one point I came across this massive hedgerow of blackberries. And I said, for this which I am about to receive, God provides on the journey. Well, in today's gospel, Jesus is on a journey. And it is no small journey. The very first line in our story says, he set his face to Jerusalem. And that is a huge pregnant sentence for Luke. It's not just like, well, now you know, they were in the Gerasenes last week, and now they're going to Jerusalem. He's talking about setting his face to the vision of God. He's setting his face to what Jerusalem represents, not simply the geographical location of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem as the Hebrew city of God. Jerusalem as the symbol of what God will do in the world in restoring all people and bringing all people into harmony with one another and God and the planet and the earth. Jerusalem as the vision of restoration. And what Luke wants us to hear in chapter 9 is Jesus got real clear 
And all that came before it and all that will come after is in the context of setting his face to Jerusalem. And we know it's a symbolic statement because if he had just left last week from this town of the Gerasenes and gone to Jerusalem, it would have been less than a week to get there. But this is chapter 9, and he doesn't get to Jerusalem until chapter 19. And if you trace on a map where he goes, it's all over the place. It's not a direct line. But what he is on is the journey to Jerusalem, to this fixed path, to the vision of God. That's what he's fixed his sight on. Where is his steeple, so to speak? And how does every encounter that I have as Jesus keep me focused on Jerusalem? This path, here are just a few things that the path includes. Many, many meals in homes. You've heard us say many times that Jesus eats his way through the Gospels. And that's not just a cute detail. What does that tell us about how human community is made? Those Belgian lunches I joked about, I realized later were Eucharistic because we stopped and paused and shared stories, both what we had seen and about the people we knew that had been there some 40-some years before. What does it tell us if we are about the vision of God and restoration, the place of meals, literally sitting around table with people, not just this table, but all tables? So Jesus is eating in many homes on this journey. Stops with Mary and Martha, you know that story. There are many healing stories on this path, healing of women, healing of lepers, people whose cultures said, you are not acceptable because of what you are, and Jesus goes and restores them and says, no, we're about Jerusalem here. This is what we do. There are many exorcisms where he names the demonic in their midst and says, this cannot be in Jerusalem. So whatever is destroying us and our souls must be cast out. And we need not minimize the power of the demonic in our world. Oh, one of the homes he happens to stop at is Zacchaeus the tax collector. You may remember that story. Zacchaeus the tax collector who basically was an extortionist through his own people And Jesus goes to him and doesn't say, Zacchaeus, let's go to the temple so you can repent. He says, I want dinner at your house tonight. Which caused a huge stir in the community. But see, Jesus has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem and restoration. And Zacchaeus says, no one has treated me like this. By the end of dinner, he says, four times will I repay what I have extorted because you have dared to sit down and have a meal with me. What does that tell us about the power of meals? There's the story where Jesus welcomes the children, says, bring the children to me. And that sounds like a cute Bible story, great for, you know, vacation Bible school. Oh, you know, suffer the little children, you know, bring in the chorus, Jesus loves the little, anyway, sorry. But what that was, was a proclamation about discipleship. Because infanticide was still being practiced in parts in Jesus' time. And what the gospel writer is saying is, folks, we do not let our female children die. Jesus says, if you want to be about Jerusalem, the children are everything. That's part of the path to Jerusalem. So all through these chapters where his face is set to Jerusalem, it's about discipleship. It's about in every human encounter he has saying, what will restore human beings here? 
What will restore the community? What will restore the planet? That's what we need to be about. Even Jerusalem itself, as we've said, wasn't about Jesus thinking, I'm going to go die for those people. You remember months ago, early when we were in Luke, where it says Jesus is 12 years old, his parents forget him in Jerusalem, home alone too. And Jesus, we hear in that that Jesus' parents took him to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. And we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. He didn't go there to get killed. He said, if I don't go to Jerusalem for the Passover, I'm already dead if I give in to the fear. Because his sight was fixed. So, as I mentioned, Jesus had his, st- his steeple, if you will, the thing that he must keep in sight. And the path isn't direct, and the path isn't always obvious, and even for Jesus there will be dead ends and regrouping and bouncing back. He'll run in in his life to the Canaanite woman who reminds him, Jesus, your ethnic separations of you and me have no place in Jerusalem. And he says, you're right, woman. Your faith is greater than anyone in in Israel, including me. Your daughter's healed. Thanks for reminding me what Jerusalem looks like. And so what Luke is saying to us is that it is us as the body of Christ who are to keep our faces fixed on Jerusalem so that every moment of our lives, individually, every moment of our lives as a community of faith, we are asking, what does this have to do with Jerusalem? How does Jerusalem speak to this moment in our lives? Is it about the restoration of God? Is that our watermark? What does that mean about how I speak with other people? What does that mean about how I speak about other people? And by that, I don't just mean let's all be nice like a Hallmark card. Certainly it means charity and compassion when we're speaking. But it also means like Jesus holding each other accountable if we're not living out Jerusalem and loving each other enough to say that path is killing you and it's going to kill all of us if we stay on it. What does Jerusalem have to do with children at the border and what does Jerusalem have to do about borders in general? He fixed his face on Jerusalem. Lest we think it's a really simple thing to do, what about the people who come up to him and say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you, but I need to go bury my dead. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, you don't get to go to the funeral. That doesn't sound really caring and compassionate, does it? It doesn't sound like restoration. I mean, in fact, that's biblical. (laughs) You take care of your dead. But Jesus is saying, actually, in this instance, let's think about what Jerusalem requires here. Because actually, that may be more of a distraction in some way that you haven't realized. And we need to be brave enough to ask, is this a distraction, even when it sounds biblical? Because again, when the demonic comes to us, it doesn't come with the big honking ones. When the devil came to Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, he didn't say, Jesus, why don't you call down fire like the disciples said? Instead, he says, Jesus, you're really hungry, aren't you? You've been out here for 30 days without food. I went for three hours and I was panicking. Jesus is out there for 30 days. And the devil says, well, now, wait a minute. Aren't, you're the son of God, right? Yeah, okay, let's see. God f- provides manna in the wilderness, right? Yeah. And you're the bread of life, yeah, yeah. 
And you're hungry, right? Yeah, so why don't you make some bread? That's what you do. It's biblical. It's your people's story. That's what comes to us. And Jesus says, you know, I am famished, but for some reason I have the sense that Jerusalem doesn't call for me making bread out of those rocks. This path to Jerusalem, it's about meals, literal meals. And our asking ourselves, both personally and communally, who do we need to go have meals with? Who do we need to go, not only so that we find the Jerusalem in ourselves, but we find the Jerusalem is that is in others that we need to find? This path to Jerusalem is about healing and naming the traumas that we have experienced and bringing them to God and say, restore this so that I can see differently. This path to Jerusalem is about exorcisms and naming there are real powers in this world. That's not just crazy religious talk. There are real powers, and they influence us. And where do we need to have the communal exorcisms if we're going to stay on the path? Because finally, what this path's about is joy. What this path is about is celebrations. Those meals that Jesus goes to, he doesn't go just so he can preach the gospel. He goes because he loves being with people and he loves what manifests when they have meals together. When he's at the wedding of Cana, he's dancing. That's why he's mad at his mother. He's celebrating with the people because by keeping his eyes fixed on Jerusalem, he finds the Jerusalem in other people and it feeds him and he feeds them and they find the very life of God in their midst. Jerusalem is about joy and celebration, and it's about asking the questions that keep our eyes focused on Jerusalem. So, <clears throat> what are, are our steeples? What are our Jerusalems? What are those foundational values by which we measure everything we're about? And who are the people that help us ask the questions that keep us focused on Jerusalem? What does it take for us as a faith community to fix our eyes on Jerusalem?